What would you do if Mark Driscoll was your pastor? Some of you have been in that situation. You have sat under the authoritarian, bullying-type pastor, and you you found yourself at that crossroads. Do you self-censor and just keep your head down and just go with the flow, or do you speak out? Do you leave? How do you engage a person like Mark Driscoll? and he's your pastor. This question is more common than some of you might realize. Mark Driscoll is not an isolated case. I mean, you can almost say that there is a, minimally, there's a slight pandemic of authoritarian bully and pastors in our culture today. Again, this is not isolated. And so there's a lot of practical application for all of us in this podcast, and I want to communicate several of those things with you, and I trust it will benefit you. But what would you do if Mark Driscoll was your pastor? You decide to stay in the church, but you're opposed to the language, the bullying, the manipulation, the narcissism. How would you respond? You have basically three options. You can self-censor, put your head down, go with the flow, pretend it's not happening, and, 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 and make do the best you can. Or you could seek to be part of the redemptive effort to make a difference in the life of this man and that church. Or you could choose to leave. Those are basically your three options. Responding the right way to authoritarians is the topic of this episode from the Christianity Today podcast series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. But rather than getting into the details or the minutiae of what was presented in this episode, I do want to get more into the application side of things so that we can learn, because this is a common problem with so many of us. Do you self-censor? Do you speak out? How do you do it? I want to talk about all of these things. Welcome to the podcast. This is Life Over Coffee you're listening to, and I am Rick Thomas, and I'm very glad that you are here. If you want to read my show notes, you are welcome to do that. Go to episode 362 on our ministry's website, and then look for response to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, episode 10. I'm going to give you a brief flyby of this particular episode from Mike Cosper, the narrator of the Christianity Today series, but I don't want to spend a lot of time there because there are other things that I want to share with you that I trust will bring benefit to you, practically speaking. But this episode opened up with a review of the fall of Ted Haggard, who fell into sexual sin a few years ago, and Mark Driscoll was commenting on that, and one of the things that he said, he talked about how women let themselves go. It was an implied accusation about the complicity of wives in the, in the fall of men, men who fall into sexual sin. It was an astounding statement. I mean, dumb, dumb is the word that comes to mind. There's other words that you could probably think of. Unbelievable that he would say something like this, but they played the soundbite. I heard it with my own ears. And then from that point, Mike Cosper interviewed Rose Sweatman. Now, she's a female pastor in Seattle, Washington, and her and her husband and a few other people were just fed up with the antics of Mark Driscoll. And he was not their pastor, but uh, they chose not to self-censor and to actually speak into it. And so they called a meeting with Mark Driscoll and his friend, uh, Leif Moy, and they got together and they went around and around and there was really nothing redemptive that came from that. And then from there in the episode, Mike Hosper swung over to Indiana 
and spoke about the godlike status of Bobby Knight, the best college basketball coach for the Indiana Hoosers, and the fallout and the damage of his coaching antics. One of his coaching antics was throwing a metal chair across the gymnasium floor uh, in a fit of rage during a basketball game. Another antic, which led to the unraveling and the firing of Bobby Knight, was choking one of his players. And then Mike Cosper landed the plane, asking the question, why does a person stay in power for so long, and what are the enabling factors that make it so? Those two things work together. A person like Bobby Knight or Mark Driscoll stay in power, but there are always enabling factors that make it, make it so. Now, there were many subpoints in this episode, but the big thing that Mike Cosper was trying to do was to connect Bobby Knight to Mark Driscoll and then talk about this temptation of enabling these types of people. In Bobby Knight's case, uh, there were a lot of uh, alumni and, and, of course, the institution uh, itself. And there were some deep pocket money people that were enabling him and other enablers as well. And there were also enablers who were afraid to speak out. Uh, Mike Cosper talked about how hard it was to get people to comment because they were so afraid. And that is real. And if you've ever been in an authoritarian situation where it's an abusive pastor like Mark Driscoll or an abusive coach like Bobby Knight, fear is always a factor. And even though you don't want to enable the situation, you do end up doing that by not uh, speaking out. And so this is an, an issue. And this is where, this is what I want to talk about uh, in this podcast. I, I want to try to answer the question, why do people enable someone like Mark Driscoll? But you have to understand, this is a complicated problem, and what I don't want you to hear is uh, condemnation or condescension or, or criticism as though I am above all of this because I am easily tempted with all of these things that I'm going to present to you. And quite frankly, I was in this situation. I served with a dictatorial, godlike, abusive pastor once upon a time, and I know what it's like to wrestle with that tension. Do I just self-censor myself and keep my head down? By the way, I chose that. Uh, for two or three years, or do I actually start speaking up? And so I want to walk through that with you. Now, regardless of what the authoritarian context might be, whether it's a pastor, a spouse, a parent, employer, uh, there's decisions to make, or even our culture. Our culture is a bully culture. Our government at times is a bully government, and we have to make those choices. And so Mark Driscoll is not some faint, isolated individual from our history books that has no current application to our lives. It's just not true. We're all in this together, and we have to make those choices every day. And so for the remainder of this podcast, I want to do two things. One, I want to share with you eight reasons that a person might self-censor, and then I want to give you uh, seven things to consider if you choose to speak up to an individual like Mark Driscoll or 
whoever the overreaching authoritarian is in your life at this point. It's just uh, eight reasons a person might self-censor in no particular order. The first one is the cost. There's a cost involved if you choose to speak up. You see the enablers in, like, say, Mark Driscoll's church in Mars Hill, they have a vested interest in him staying in his position. If all this thing falls apart, then, well, they're going to lose their salaries, for example. And I struggled with this tension, too. I was on staff at the local church. I was receiving a full-time salary. My wife was a stay-at-home mom. We were going to go to go from that salary to zero. Now, by the way, that's what inevitably happened. We went from 30-something thousand dollars a year to zero in a second. And those were some very tough days, but that's what I had to factor in. And so when a person finds themselves, themselves in a situation that they did not ask to be in, but they're in it, And if they self-censor, they can just keep their head down and try to endure until the end until something happens. Or if they make that hard decision, they know that there is a cost involved, and it can be a substantial cost. Number two is fear. They are afraid to say anything because of intimidation and retribution. There is a cost when you speak out against something. There is always a cost. And many people will choose the perceived safe path to go down, the path of least resistance, instead of doing what they know to be is the right thing. And again, I'm not saying that in a condemning way because I struggled with cost, chose to keep my mouth shut for a long time. I struggled with fear because there were times that I did speak out and I just, I, I, I experienced the wrath of the king. I'll just say it that way. And after a while, you just get bullied so many times. The fear in you will grow, and it will capture you if you're not careful. And so one reason that a person will self-censor is the cost. Another one is the fear. Three is the unaffected. I will self-censor because the abuse doesn't affect me. Whatever the pain points are, they are out of sight. And when out of sight, they're out of mind. You know, it's kind of like the reports that we hear about things happening on the other side of the country. We know they are real. And you'll hear this in a newscast every now and then where someone would say, you know, I've heard of stuff like this, but now it happened to me. I mean, it's a totally different world. Uh, we tend to engage only at the last minute after, after the tsunami rolls over our banks. And so one reason that a person will self-censor is because they are unaffected. In the case of abuse, they are not being abused. And so self-censoring reasons, I have eight of them. One is the cost. There's a cost involved that I don't want to pay the price. Number two, fear. Uh, There's retribution if I speak up, and so I'm afraid to say anything. Three, unaffected. It's not happening to me. Number four is justification. They don't want to see it. The enablers pretend, or they manipulate their thinking to where they can overlook what is happening in plain sight. They see it, but they don't see it because they manipulate their thinking. They do that through justifications. Uh, 
That's why I, I, I titled this point justification, or they rationalize their consciences. Now, whenever you go down that road, uh, you start justifying what you're seeing or rationalizing what you're seeing. Eventually, your conscience will stop talking to you. Your conscience will go silent because it will be hard justifying sin that is happening over and over again, it will start laying down just thin layers of dullness over your conscience, over your inner voice, until eventually you'll be so desensitized that you can't hear your inner voice any longer. And so they will justify or rationalize their consciences. Perhaps they blame the authoritarian's actions on the victim's. And that happens so often, especially in sexual abuse situations. I was just listening to the Amanda Knox story. She was a lady who spent time in Italy, and her roommate, girl, roommate, girlfriend, was murdered, and they blamed her for the murder. And she was in jail for four years. Now, she was eventually let out, and they found the person who actually did did the crime. This is like worst-case scenario where they blamed the victim for the crime. And so when these type of justifications happen, after a while, the enablers become desensitized, and they can live in plain sight of what they are observing, and it doesn't bother them anymore. Number five is normalization. In the podcast episode from Christianity Today, uh, this was mentioned by Rachel, Rachel Den Hollander. They interviewed her again. They did it in a few episodes back. And she said what happens sometimes is that people will normalize the abusive behavior. It's another way of justification. And so one of the ways that the enablers rationalize the actions is by normalizing it. It's okay, or it's not that big of a deal, or Worse things are happening in this world, and so they don't see it as abnormal. They normalize it. Number six is pragmatism. Uh, they, they become pragmatic with the formula of success versus damages. There's a lot of success happening. There's a lot of downloads that are going on. People are listening to my sermons, and so there is success all over the place. We're growing multiple campuses, and thousands more people are here than they used to be. And so when you go down the pragmatic road where you weigh the formula, success versus damages, and you put the accent mark on the success, well, uh, that uh, is going to be a huge problem, and that will motivate you to enable, to be an enabler to the abuse. Now, the pragmatic response has been a running theme throughout this series. It's a tempting temptation to look at all the good that is happening and then justify the process for these good outcomes. Number seven is work. They do not want to stir up the potential mess. Now, I know many of you, including myself, have been in this boat. You look at the problem with a child or a parent or a, a spouse or a church member or a pastor, a leader on staff. You look at the potential mess. Anytime you speak into the conflict, there will be a mess. And the bigger the conflict, the more massive the mess you will stir up. And some people would look at the scale of the problem and what it would take to work through it, and they would just choose not to engage. It just is not worth it. Well, remember, I'm not saying you should engage, 
But just remember, if you don't engage, it's going to continue. And so number seven, seven reasons that a person may enable. Number seven is work. There's a lot of work involved. And then finally, number eight is control. Oddly, they don't want to do the hard work of stepping into the mess, but they will work They will work overtime doing damage control. They will try to control it, doing damage control. It's the how can I keep what I have while mitigating the damages that it is causing. It's trying to live in both worlds. It's trying to serve two masters, basically. It's trying trying to, I'll throw in more metaphors here, it's trying to uh, straddle the fence. How can I keep what I have while mitigating the damages that it's causing mindset? It's that kind of a mindset. And so they do damage control. And so why would a person self, uh, self-censor? self Number one, the cost involved. Number two, uh, cost meaning like I could lose my position, lose my position, my prestige. Uh, number two, fear, retribution. Number three, unaffected. It, it doesn't affect me. I'm not being abused. It's over there somewhere. Number four, justification. We make it okay. And we, we, we justify our consciences. Uh, number five, normalize it. We make the behavior. Uh, it's it's kind of like justification, but there's two different things here. Justification, I wanted to speak to as to what it does, what justification does to your consciences. And then normalization is just a very common thing in abuse situations. Number six is pragmatism as you weigh success versus damages. Number seven is work. There's a lot of work involved. Uh, if I step into this mess. And number eight, I use control, damage control. I'll try to control it and straddle the fence. These are eight reasons that a person will self-censor. Now, whatever context that you're in, I mean, perhaps you're not part of an authoritarian church with a bullying pastor, but you have another relationship where you have to decide the worth of speaking into it. These potential skirmishes happen all the time. I've outlined a few of him, a few of them here, in addition to the authoritarian pastor, again, whether it's in the home or work or school or wherever it may be. We have to weigh them on their merits. And so I want to wrap up by giving you a few thoughts as to whether you should engage. And these thoughts are in increasing order of intensity. And so here's seven thoughts, starting with the mildest one uh, to number seven, which is the most intense one. And so you're in an authoritarian context. You have a bully pastor or something else, uh, some other type of narcissistic relationship that's happening. A person's being selfish, and you're choosing whether to speak into it, and you decide that you didn't want to be an enabler uh, to him that knows to do good and does not do it. To him, to that person, it is a sin. And so you're realizing that it would be sin in your part if you don't do something. And so here are seven considerations in an increasing order of intensity. Number one, sometimes you can overlook the problem the current situation that's happening, because it would be better to engage the person and the situation at another time. For example, in parenting, this is a common response to a child. You choose to overlook what the child is doing. One, you don't want to nickel and dime 
a child. Two, you realize that there will be another opportunity in this child's future because they're going to do something wrong sometime in the future. And uh, you're also studying a person's trajectory. I mean, if this child is growing and maturing and is trying to do the right thing, but they mess up, you may choose to overlook it. Or maybe you want to pick a more significant moment in the future to make it more memorable, and so you choose to overlook this smaller moment. Now, there can be other reasons to overlook an offense or overlook a situation, but usually it has something to do with your playing a longer game in the relationship. Sometimes it's not wise to speak to everything that you see right at the moment. So number one, you overlook. Number two, you're unsure, and so you want to seek wise counsel. And so you may overlook it, you may not, you're not exactly sure, and so you want to seek wise counsel. Some people have asked the question, is it gossip uh, to seek counsel from someone about another matter? And the answer to that question is it doesn't have to be. A lot of it is tied to the motive of your heart. If your motivation is all about redemption, I mean, your only purpose in speaking to another person is born out of your humility that you don't know the right answer, you don't know the right path to take, and born out of that humility, you want to talk to someone who's a little further down the road maybe has a little more wisdom. Uh, They won't rubber stamp you. They have the courage to speak into your life. They have biblical competency. Uh, They know how to search the scriptures and apply it. And so you're talking to a wise person who can actually uh, bring value to the conversation that will help you to move forward one way or the other. Now, if that's the motivation of your heart, then seeking wise counsel is wise. Now, if your point for talking to somebody is just to vent that you're not really looking for redemptive solutions, then the motivation of your heart is proud, and that would be gossip. But talking about other people is not necessarily sin, but it ties to the motivation of your heart, the reason that you want to talk about someone to somebody else. And so do I self-censor or not? Do I speak up or not? to this situation that is right in front of me. Number one, you may choose to overlook it because you're playing a longer game with the individual. Number two, you're unsure, and so you seek wise counsel for someone who can add value to the situation. Number three, if you're not afraid of the person and the person can't harm you, perhaps the initial wise approach is to meet with the individual. If you're not afraid and they can't harm you, and that is important. If you go into a situation full of fear and you can't overcome that fear and it's an authoritarian, bullying-type person, they're probably going to gaslight you. They're probably going to manipulate you. And that conversation is probably not going to go well. But if you're not afraid and the person can't harm you. Now, if the person can harm you, uh, that's on a whole nother level also. Uh, Then you do not want to confront or talk to this person. So if you're not afraid and they can't harm you, perhaps a good, wise approach would be to meet with them and start having that conversation. Number four, if the person is hurting someone else, 
you must speak into it. And I talked about this earlier with point number three as to why some people self-censor. They're unaffected. The abuse does not affect them. Well, for example, within the Christian worldview, if one person in the body of Christ is hurting, the entire body is affected. And if you see a person that is hurting someone, you have to do something about it. Now, I don't know exactly what you have to do. We would have to uh, talk about it and see what the context, the situation, the relationships are involved and what is what kind of hurt is happening. But you have to move forward on this if the person is hurting Uh, You must speak into it. That's number four. Number five, if you and others speak to the person and he refuses to change, then you may need to exercise Matthew 18. This is Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. In the case of Mark Driscoll, uh, he needed to be confronted uh, with his many sins, and there needed to be a process of repentance. Now, it's interesting that this group, Uh, This uh, Rose uh, Sweatman and her husband and a few other people, they were trying to do that, but that that wasn't in the context of a local church. But I do commend them, by the way, for trying to speak into it. They were unwilling to self-censor. They wanted to do something. Of course, it did not not work, but I do commend them to wanting to speak into it. Uh, I appreciate their courage, and I, I appreciate... Um, their desire to try to fix this. And so if you and others speak to the person and he refuses to change, this is number five, you may need to start the process of Matthew 18. Then number six, if the person will not repent, you may have to leave the church. Now this is dicey because now we're getting into the tension to how much do you say, how, uh, what all do you say, and how broad do you make this, what kind of exposure, and I don't know the answers to those questions. Those are uh, individual situations that have to be discussed uh, based on their merits within a, a context of a group of people who have the ability to do something about it and the competence, the biblical competence to speak into it. Uh, but if the person will not repent, minimally, you may have to leave the church. Now, that was the situation uh, with me. And one of the reasons that you want to do that, uh, because, you one, you don't want to subject yourself to that kind of stuff in an ongoing way. And then, two, uh, you could start sinning. And there are a lot of people who sin in response to the abuse that happened to them. And and many times they don't see it or they justify it because what happened to them in their mind is more significant than their sinful reactions to it. And you don't want to be that church member where you're walking in there every Sunday morning and you were sinning. And that is exactly what I was doing. I was sending my brains out because I just couldn't take it anymore. I refused to take it anymore, and I was sinning, but the sin was not good for my soul. And so I had a few options that were before me. Confront the pastor, which I'd done multiple times. Uh, keep quiet and and my conscience be okay, uh, but that wasn't happening. My conscience was sounding a big alarm that this is just not 
right. And I didn't want to tweak my conscience because it was not right. I would mess up my conscience by making it right. I talked about this earlier. By normalizing what he was doing uh, would mess up my own conscience. And so I was left with option number three, had no choice but to leave the church. And then number seven, if the person is breaking the law, well, then you must report the person and the organization. Now, of course, this was the problem with Sovereign Grace Ministries, that they covered up a sexual abuse situation, and uh, I believe the guy's name was Nathan Morales, who uh, got 40 years in prison once it all came out. But Sovereign Grace, led by C.J. Mahaney, uh, covered that up for uh, like two and a half decades, something uh, like that. And if a person is breaking the law, you can't back away. Uh, you have to step into it, and you have to report the individual or the organization. So increasing intensity, when to speak up. Sometimes you overlook, number one. Number two, if you're unsure, seek wise counsel. Number three, if you're not afraid and he can't harm you, approach the person and talk to him. Number four, if the person is hurting someone else, you need to speak up, abusing someone else. Number five, if you and others speak into his life, life and he refuses to change, begin a process of Matthew 18. Number six, if the person will not repent, you may have to leave the church. And number seven, if they're breaking the law, that's a crime and you have to report it. This is episode 362. The title of it is Response to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Episode number 10. If you would like to talk about this episode or anything else that's on your mind, we have free community forums. Our forums are free to you, and you're welcome to jump on them and talk about this or the other thing, and it would be a joy to serve you. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.